All right. So on the rescue cast today, we have all the way from the United States of America, which is a long, long way away from me, but uh, Rosemary. And she's here today to talk about some advocacy around search and rescue and some funding around search and rescue in the state of Hawaii. Um, and a lot of this was in process before the fires that occurred in Maui in August of this year. But obviously that's brought it up a little bit more to the forefront. So Rosemary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Um, why don't we start with like every podcast out there, a little bit about you and how you started down this path. Well, it wasn't intentional. I can tell you that. Um, I, a strategist by nature and a retired engineer, shall we say. And I moved to Hawaii in 2012. I'm an avid hiker, skier, um, outdoors enthusiast, and safety advocate. And when I moved to Hawaii, uh, there seemed to be a lot of women who went missing. Um, so I was always on high alert and started some hiking groups. So I wasn't hiking alone. Um, and, uh, fast forward, a few, I don't know, several years. Um, I've also, I've taught yoga for 20 years. And so fast forward about five years and, um, all of a sudden there was another woman who went missing this time she was a yoga teacher. So there was a call out from, um, to the community to bring together volunteers and, uh, to go do a grid search. So I got involved in that and that's how it all started. So just kind of grassroots efforts in, you know, just meeting people and going out and trying to help the community that you're, we're, you're playing in and, and you're recreating and sort of thing. Correct. Yes. And that particular search, I mean, um, that was your first introduction basically to like a search and rescue style environment. Yes, it was. And it was pretty profound. Uh, that particular search, we searched after 48 to 72 hours, the police and fire pulled out. And that is their protocol. Um, and it was left entirely up to community members. The search was highly publicized and a lot of media, it, it garnered lots of media attention, which pulled in additional searchers. There were over a thousand volunteer search community members, basically people who come from all over the actual the country and the mainland to come search for this woman. And uh, we searched for, you know, 14, 15, 16 days, 17 days. And we were actually going, we were packing up base camp because there was nowhere else to search. Uh, we were moving base camp to a different area and some of the, the incident commander and a couple other guys went out and were doing some reconnaissance work in a helicopter to see where we could be safely deployed moving forward. If we could be safely deployed, moving forward to continue searching. And uh, it was right before sunset and the helicopter um they they spotted her um after 17 days and she was alive that's awesome i mean the successful outcomes after that length of time as you know are very rare so to be involved in such a large scale public event with a successful outcome 
as your first introduction to SAR is certainly a unique experience. It, it was life-changing. It changed a lot of people's lives, anybody that was there. There was a couple dozen, probably about three dozen of us that continued to search and didn't give up. And we, um, there's not one person that wouldn't say it was life-changing. I mean, at that point in time, I don't believe that anybody in the state of Hawaii after three or four days has ever been found um, alive. And not only, you know, this wasn't just a uh, recovery. This was an actual rescue, baskets and all, and it made world news. Um, it was, it was, it was hard to imagine, hard to believe. And if I wasn't there, I wouldn't have believed it myself because it was just such a true miracle. And from that, I'm just trying to set up a little background. Is um, you've been involved with a little bit of the SAR conferences in Hawaii with some of the logistics and setting up around there. Is that correct? What happened is after you know, the successful rescue, I started doing research because that's just in my nature. Um, I'm very data driven. And I wanted to get to the root cause of why is it that the police and fire had to pull out after 24, uh, I mean, after 48, 72 hours, I was actually very angry about the fact that the resources were so limited. And I was like, you know, well, what if I got stuck out there? How, who would ever look and find? And so that drove me to start doing some uh, data collection. And what I found is that there's not a lot of data to collect. Um, and when I started researching this, it was really hard to garner, you know, the information. And um, fast forward, you know, a few years, there were a few uh, trainings that were attempted and, and weren't really launched very well. And so um, I was pulling, like I said, all of this data together. And I, I got to speak to experts around the country because there was a search and rescue conference that we initiated. And due to this conference that we initiated, um, <clears throat> after the call for speakers, the, the, the different experts from around the country that we had chosen to be speakers, I got to speak with them in great detail. And so I had an opportunity to collect best practices around the country with what was occurring around the country. And so some of the things that I found is that Hawaii is one of the few states in the nation without a state SAR coordinator. It is also um, with that does not have a state SAR planned, a state SAR fund or states our board to distribute any of the funds. Um, one of the reasons or what I have discovered too is that Hawaii is one of the few states, it's I think only the second state in the country that has a sheriff at a state level. I think it's Hawaii and Rhode Island have it at a state level and not a county level. And so west of the Rockies, for sure. Most of the SAR teams are organized under the county sheriff, and that is not an option in Hawaii because we don't have county sheriffs. We only have one state sheriff. With, you know, starting these conferences, just to kind of recap this, you came to realize that the funding and the coordination in the state of Hawaii is a bit different than some of the other states are lacking, maybe perhaps. And even the way the state had set up its police services or its sheriffs in this case, 
is different so that a different model would need to be found. Uh, is that pretty correct then? Yes, that's very accurate. And just so that the folks that are out there can understand, like you mentioned this, hey, we have no SAR coordinator or no state SAR coordinator. Could you explain what a state SAR coordinator would do in other states? Well, <clears throat> as it stands now, there is a state SAR coordinator for the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard is different. They are all maritime. So they handle everything outside of the land. They handle everything in the ocean. The state SAR coordinator coordinates efforts as far as communications. They're a liaison with the public and the media. They collect data. They provide assistance to like you said, the different SAR organizations and everything that falls under the SAR organizations. People think SAR, they think, okay, it's a, you know, volunteer search and rescue backcountry team, perhaps. Well, it's actually, there's SAR involved in, um, you know, uh, emergency management agency, National Guard, the Coast Guard, Civil Air Patrol. There's um, Department of Land and Natural Resources. There's Fire Department, Police Department, Ocean Safety, Forestry and Wildlife, National Guard. There's all of these different departments throughout a state level that all fall within the umbrella of search and rescue. So this coordinator then, that position is to coordinate, obviously, I mean, the, the definition of the word, um, those different agencies in order to utilize them in, you know, the most effective way when needed for somebody goes missing, whether it be on land or in the water. Is that uh, sort of the sum it up? Well, from what would happen now, the way the process, if there is any process in the state of Hawaii, the way the process currently works is, you know, an emergency call is made to dispatch dispatch will then send that to the, the proper authority. When it's water related, it is immediately sent to the Coast Guard search and rescue states are coordinator. If it's um, wilderness related, it's deployed to the fire department. The states are coordinator would normally do is track data. So they establish proper, proper protocol and answer questions from the public and the media. They coordinate the independent islands, um, the the volunteer search and rescue teams if they fall under a sheriff or a police department. There's multiple different tasks or responsibilities that fall under the state's our coordinator. Right now, if somebody gets lost in the back wilderness in Hawaii somewhere. It's the fire department that's called and do what other teams would be part of that besides the fire department. You're saying if it goes dispatched out, it goes to fire. And then how does that coordinate down from there? Well, it really depends on what County it is in Hawaii because every Island is a different County. And Let's just say Oahu, for example, it is dispatched to the fire department. Fire department will search for 48 hours on a wilderness search, um, sometimes up to 72 hours if they find it justified. There are There is Oahu Search and Rescue on Oahu, which is a volunteer organization, and they 
there is also search tech advisory team that assists with um, technology. If in fact the family reaches out to Oahu search and rescue or search tech advisory team, then they will de be deployed and they will come in and take over where the police and fire have left off. If this is something on Kauai, for example, Kauai search and rescue has a, a understanding with the fire department and the fire department will then deploy the search and rescue team. Uh, that is one of the issues with the different islands in the counties. It's not all of the island search and rescue teams have letters, have understandings with the fire departments. And that is why the Hawaii Sarkon is so essential too in building those relationships and those communications with not only the, the volunteer SAR teams, but those agencies and the agency personnel and the right people um, point of contact within those agencies. So if, for example, we're like, well, we need to get civil air patrol out here, well, then somebody from the search and rescue team um, can go ahead and call uh, someone from civil air patrol. It's a matter of the fire and the police, civil air patrol, the volunteer search and rescue organizations, as well as the Coast Guard, all working together and having lines of communication and relationships open so that they can then utilize resources more effectively and efficiently to save lives. For instance, on the mainland, if a county needs extra resources or they need more boots on the ground, they just drive over and they assist. That's not the way it is in Hawaii. They are separated by a big body of water and there are resources involved that would it would take for them to come over to another island. That right there is the reason why the communications and the relationships are key. And the Hawaii Sarkon actually builds those particular relationships. It's the, the only platform in the state of Hawaii that brings together all of the public safety, the emergency services, the search and rescue um, teams together, as well as any of the community volunteers that want to participate in search and rescue, as well as educating those on safety and prevention within the state. So that's interesting. It sounds almost like Sarkon is filling the gap that a SAR coordinator might want to fill. Uh, yeah, it is actually. Um, and we had chatted, you know, a little offline before this. And I know uh, T-Rescue in the magazine just put out an article about Lost in Paradise uh, boats. And they mentioned some stats in there. And they had said that, you know, contrary to probably popular belief, it's more of a 50-50 split about the amount of tourists versus locals that are going missing. And that, according to the data they have, Hawaii is possibly number two in the nation for missing persons in the backcountry. Is that correct? Is like, Does that uh, kind of ring true out of that article? It's not only the backcountry. Missing persons includes like any ocean, wilderness. Um, it includes crim any criminal activity, human trafficking, abductions, runaways, homeless. So in within the homeless, there's mental health issues. There's those that perhaps have like um, dementia or Al Alzheimer's. And so there's mental health issues as well. So within NamUs, they go ahead and they, they bucket all of those under one 
one category, and that's considered missing persons. Prior to the August 8th fires, Hawaii was tied for second in the nation for missing persons, and they were tied with Oklahoma, first being Alaska. Wow. Okay. Um, so there is definitely some need for these type of resources to be there. I mean, if they're, you know, that kind of missing persons and, you know, to coordinate it, because as you mentioned, a, a lot of this starts to fall under police jurisdiction as well, where, you know, is it criminal? Is it not criminal? And then breaking it down to, you know, is this a search and is it on land or in the water? So there is quite a, uh, a coordination piece that has to come with that. I believe it was um, the chief of police in Maui who, um, Chief Pelletier, had been quoted for saying that all missing persons cases should be investigated criminally as well as conducting a search if this, if, if it were a search and rescue in the wilderness. So um, unless it is 100% known that this person has just gotten lost and, you know, went, took a trail the wrong way, it should always be investigated as a criminal investigation as well, simultaneously. Yeah. And that's interesting because and we've just spoken about, if you call for a missing person in Hawaii or, you know, there's some agencies that you may be, depending on the county where you may be directed to, and a lot of the rest of the country and other countries, those calls naturally go to the police as a missing persons and SAR as mentioned in, you know, the rest of America, a lot of the rest of America falls under county sheriff and as a missing person and they get dispatched that way. It just seems that Hawaii is a little bit different in that regard. Correct. Like I may have said, um, so Hawaii is one of the only two states in the country that have a state sheriff versus a county sheriff. So generally missing persons would be elevated to the county sheriff. That is a difference as well with Hawaii. So with the advocacy that folks like yourself are looking for and talking to the governor of the state, what's the message that you want to deliver? Like what's the, the core fundamental message that is, hey, you know, if I had the, the two minutes in the elevator with the governor, what do I want to portray? Or what do I, what message do I want to get across? Well, I think it's, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. And if you start looking at the data, you will see that across the board, there is a gross lack of funding for prevention and safety in the state of Hawaii. You're looking, you know, predominantly for some sort of sustainable funding model for the coordination and the operational end training and operational end of searching them. Yes, I'd even take it a step further is that there's a gross lack of funding in the state of Hawaii for prevention and safety as well as tools, training, and technology for any search and rescue activities. And that the August 8th fires is just additional evidence to support that. And I mean, we've, we've mentioned the fires of August 8th a little bit and kind of skirted around the issue. So I guess kind of diving headlong into that, um, when we had chatted earlier, we're talking four months post right now of that particular incident. Um, and you were actually in the governor's office or delivering to 
the government that day. Can you go into that? <clears throat> I happened to be at the state capitol speaking with the leadership team the day of the fires, um, and the presentation was essentially discussing uh, how there's a lack of resources for a statewide safety and prevention plan. Which is quite uh, poignant considering what had occurred that day. And when you can't make it up, <laughs> no, you can't really you make just can't up. make this up. <laughs> um, I also found it interesting that when we were chatting offline a bit, when you came out of that meeting, it was sort of the media that made you aware that this had even occurred. So you're in a meeting with state government officials about you know safety on the islands, and you find out outside of the meeting from the media that there's actually a major incident occurring on the islands. Yeah. So, I mean, being at the state capitol that day, I will say that probably 95% of everybody there was not aware of what was happening on Maui. Um, I was contacted by the media asking if I had resources for a boat to get to the west side of Maui. And so then I gave them my contacts and I, from previous experience of the 2019 event, understood how important it was that the media get involved because without the media's attention, you know, the stories just go kind of into an oblivion and we don't get the help or support that we need on the islands. So uh, that was highly critical at the time. Um, of course, getting, you know reputable uh, media attention, not some ridiculousness of, his, you know, feeding the hysteria of, of the internet and all of the ridiculous conspiracy theories. I mean, I remember watching it. Obviously, I'm, I'm up in Canada. I remember the news for the first week. It was headline news. And we live close to the States. We get a lot of U.S. news. It's not unheard of for us. And then, as you mentioned, or we mentioned, it just, you know, it's sort of petered off. But could you kind of give an overview from that day, like how many structures, how many people were displaced, how many structures were destroyed? Because I don't think a lot of people worldwide really understand the, the breadth and depth of this particular tragedy. It's incomprehensible, quite frankly. Um, anybody who's physically seen it, anybody who's worked in search and rescue, uh, whether, you know, it's, it's a search and rescue agency from around the country, a fire department or FEMA. Um, the consensus has been that they've not seen anything like this in our country. Um, it has been compared to, you know, the worst devastations. It's uh, initial count. I think there's 2,200 structures that have been, um, I mean, just, turned to ashes there's was over 15,000 people initially displaced there's still 7,000 people in hotel rooms these are um you know what people don't comprehend is that this is not you know a, a building it's not like a one structure it's 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 multi-generational homes this was the capital of Hawaii. This was the original kingdom of Hawaii. This is the most historical area in all of Hawaii. Um, the, the, the families here are, you know, they're family businesses here. Um, 
it it's it's incomprehensible again that this could happen in the United States anywhere and um i will have to say the only reason it occurred is because hawaii is so desolate and in so far away but is what's even worse than the the initial catastrophe of you know every i mean you know thousands and thousands of people and stories of trying to escape from a fishbowl of flames is literally what they explain is that the aftermath of what occurred um i mean people running walking uh no cars no no supplies you know on the beaches this went on for days um no supplies they're they're you know fema generally deploys and will be at a natural disaster within 48 to 72 i think it's 72 hours and it, because hawaii is so far um fema was deployed actually uh, it was first time in history that a president has ever signed a declaration of um emergency declaration so quickly fema was immediately deployed as soon as possible but because of the the time frame um they were not out there and the survivors assumed that FEMA was there to help them when in fact the FEMA is there to maintain the 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 disaster area or the 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 burn zone so when it comes to assisting the 15,000 survivors or, or escapee whatever you want to call them that was pretty much up to the county and the red cross and the state um, as the world saw, the donations just flew, fled in. I mean, it's 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 so profound that people could just, you know, they were so enamored by like aloha and 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 so felt so strongly that they they contributed so much. And all of us, everyone, every single person is just so so grateful for for all of that. Um, the thing that was missed is that in the aftermath of the the fires, thousands of people um, who were not able to flee south and get to the other side of the island to one of the Red Cross um, centers were stuck on the west side. And for anybody who's been to Hawaii, they know that there are certain islands and certain areas of those islands where there's only one way one road in and out and the west side of maui i believe is the second highest um popular second densest population for tourism in the state of hawaii and so when this happened we're contending with not only the citizens and the people of lahaina who were in the burn zone but we're also contending with I think it was 30 to 40,000 vacationer, you know, tourists at the time. So the county immediately um, sent out buses to evacuate all of the tourists and get them on flights so that they could make way for what was coming. Uh, a couple of things that were missed immediately, unfortunately, that were kind of an oversight was these survivors that were basically many of them on foot or drove out um, north 
And what people didn't recognize is that there were no gas stations. The ones that didn't blow up had no electricity. There wasn't electricity for a couple, for quite a many days. And there's no Wi-Fi. So the there was no gas on the west side of the island. And so people couldn't get to, um, they couldn't go anywhere. Even the people that lived on the west side who weren't in harm's way had no way to get groceries or or anything for quite a long time. I think that's a, a really good point to kind of reiterate on when we talk about disasters predominantly like North America wide, you know, that's 72 hours, regardless of where you live, whether it be Canada or the United States, is you'd be self-sufficient for 72 hours. And hearing that at times, some of that took up to six days. And in speaking with you and some of the stories that I've heard, you know, and you mentioned that there was no gas stations, they they burnt down, there was no grocery stores. A lot of people didn't have cars or boats left. And when you have, you know, a single, you know, highway in and highway out of a location, all of a sudden you've removed the transportation to remove those people. You've removed the power. You've removed anything to help them live for any duration of time. And just the remoteness of the fact that it's a group of islands in the Pacific and adding to that 72 hours, you know, days, um, that could really create a, quite a level of hardship for those people. Um, can you just speak to that a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, the gas is, is one thing. So uh, right away, you know, convoys of aid from community members um, were attempting to get through the, the roadblocks. And that was a, bit of a hassle for a couple of days, but they were bringing in uh, five gallon water jugs of gasoline to help people get, you know, even a gallon of gasoline would get somebody to the other side of the island to get aid from Red Cross. Um, the There is also medicine and insulin. Like there was no insulin. There was no diapers, anything like that. There isn't any aid of that. And so what a uh, really big factor too is the surfing community. They rallied um, along with some boaters from the south side of Maui. They got the boaters that they brought aid by boat. Um, there was uh, the surfing community also brought aid by boat. They brought insulin. They got um, people within the community, different islands brought fish so they could actually start eating. Um, and a couple of the individuals on the west side of Maui went over. There is a helicopter and a, there is a small airport on the west side of Maui. And so they were started bringing in supplies via helicopter. But it was via, like you said, it was mostly boat and helicopter. So with the road being shut down and that, those were the obvious ways to get in and out. Um the rebuilding and the carrying on of lives after that event, you said that there was still approximately 7,000 people living in hotels. How is, how are those people recovering? How is their mental health? How are they getting back on their feet at this point in time? I mean, for four months post, and I'm just curious about that. So, um, 
I believe it was, like I said, uh, Red, Red Lightning um, is an organization that assisted heavily with the satellite systems on the west side. If it wasn't for them, um, there would be still probably a lack of communications on the west side. They implemented all of the, um, like I said, Starlinks. That aside, the um, there the the founder of that had mentioned there are four like this is the initial catastrophe this is the initial disaster and the other there are three more tsunamis that are soon to follow the one will be um a housing economic tsunami a housing tsunami and the mental health tsunami as of november 15th there have been 18 suicides in lahaina um alone on the west side of maui so mental health is uh, a really big factor right now. It is highly impacting those people who have been um, displaced, those who are still remaining in hotels. I believe there's almost 7,000 of them remaining in hotels. And the state and county are advocating that the short-term rental owners um, consider uh, reestablishing into long-term um, rentals because there's different tax taxes and they're giving all types of benefits for those owners around the world who own property in Maui who do rent it out as short-term rentals to have the empathy and, and, and compassion to see how they can rent it out as a long-term rental to any of these 7,000 people. Uh, people, survivors who are still in the hotels because it will be years before we actually get anywhere close to rebuilding. The four-month mark just um, occurred on Friday, and I think it was just this week where all of the disaster zones are now open um, for the people to go visit their um, properties and start sifting through the ashes. In order for someone to rebuild, they, you know, to go and see where they lived and what their stuff is. I mean, that's part of that process. And I mean, to take four months to get there, that's, you know, definitely weighs on a lot of those people. Correct. I mean, so um, uh, it's, there are 83 fire zones that were partitioned off and they started allowing those people back to their zones. There are, there's FEMA is there as well as some other organizations that assist with this process of the people coming back to their zones and then like literally sifting through the ashes. And of course they have to be covered in PPE from head to toe because it was also just released how toxic the environment is and with the ashes and the debris um they there is a long process so they will be going through their own personal things and then they will be taking away the debris at some point in time and then you know that could take another six months to a year um rebuilding is is very far in the future. I mean, if anybody out there who has ever been to Lahaina, there is no Lahaina left. It's, you know, you drive up, you drive around, and then there's Kanapali. That's, uh, I don't think you, like you said, to see 
destruction on that scale outside of a wartime event, you know, for a natural disaster is, is quite unique and quite scary. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to fathom it. Yeah. It's, it's something. <laughs> I guess that brings us kind of into the next topic of responder self-care. I mean, we've chatted a lot about, you know, responders and local people. I mean, obviously with that amount of structures being destroyed, there's people that are responding that are also losing their homes. And, you know, I, I'm, everybody must have been affected or knowing somebody if they were not affected personally themselves. And how is the responder care on that side? So, you know, I think that pretty much anybody on the island of Maui knows somebody affected. Um, there's, you know, there's a there's only 180,000 um, residents on on the island of Maui. We get three million tourists a year. Hawaii gets 10 million tourists a year. Um, getting back to the responders, you know. The data that I was collecting or have been collecting for the past several years um, to to discover where all of the resources have gone or why we lack resources has shown that on any given day, our police and our fire lack manpower on any given regular day. That does not include a, you know, a brush fire or anything like that on a catastrophic day like this, I don't know for certain, but I don't think our entire state would have had the resources to um, contain or to control or there were, well, first of all, there was no containing this. It was a firestorm. Um, it hit Lahaina in three different angles from what I understand. And so what I was saying is that everybody uh, on the island knows somebody who's been affected or has been personally affected. We, we've all been affected by matter of circumstance, whether it's emotionally or economically, everyone has been affected. Um, but then those people in the fire zone, I mean, you know, like I, I, there's one person who I've sailed with and for years and had a boat, rehaul boat, it's now a business and, uh, you know, lost his boat, lost his business, lost his house, lost his cars, and was also fighting fires for what, 32 hours. He's a firefighter. So there's people who've lost so much. Um, and of course, those who have lost family members and, you know, everybody knows somebody. What people don't recognize is that this was a very tight, community, multi-generational. Everybody knows everybody, everybody, you know, there's a high school there and there's generations that go to that high school. And, you know, there's, everybody's lost. Everybody has lost. Um, the emotional trauma that goes along with that loss is not just, it's not an individual trauma. It's a community trauma it it's it's it, there's in in since the fires it was you know crisis and escalation and 
And since the fires, it's been, everybody's been in fight and flight. And generally after a trauma, there's a de-escalation period that occurs where people can eventually start to heal. And that's not happened yet. And it's been four months. And the reason for that is because, you know, they're, they're first, they're survivors, they're in hotels. Um, and now they're just getting back to see their their properties, you know, and like I said, sift through the ashes, all of that trauma. I mean, it it's just it's re-triggering, and so they are constantly in this crisis mode of trauma without any de-escalation. So right now, the need for mental health care, self-care, balancing is is critical, and I've got to say that you know, the police and the fire, not only were they there trying to rescue and, and fight the fires, many of them lost, just like I said, the one did, he lost his home and his businesses. Many of them lost their homes, their cars, their, you know, some loved ones. And it, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's truly just a horrific event that has occurred in our country. And I have heard from around the country, like nobody, it's fallen off the map. Nobody even hears about it anymore. And it's really sad because these people live this every single day and it's not going anywhere and it's not getting any better. I mean, FEMA is there and this is going to be a slow process and, you know, years to come. Um, it's just a really very, very sad situation. And and if the state has learned anything, I think that now they're recognizing how important and essential and prevalent it is to put some prevention and safety mechanisms in play, or at least I hope they are. Yeah, that's always remains to be seen with politicians. Um, a couple of other things here. When we were speaking earlier, you had said that there was three good things that you had said that kind of came out of this tragedy. And uh, could you uh, speak to those again? One of the things that people don't recognize is that um, the when this occurred, there was no electricity and no Wi-Fi. And due to that, Front Street, which normally is jam-packed and has thousands of tourists, was shut down. None of the businesses were open which is really beneficial because had that occurred, there could have been mass casualties. Um, so that was one thing. The second thing is that it's the first time in history that an emergency declaration was signed so quickly um, to allow emergency services such as FEMA to, to be deployed. Um, the other emergency services to be deployed are also communication services. So all the telecommunication carriers and all of that, they, when a natural disaster occurs, they're able to get deployments out as soon as possible, assets deployed as soon as possible. And then the third thing is that um, it's the first time in history that because Hawaii, because Maui is a resort community, um, we had the availability and that all of the evacuees were able to be housed in real beds in privacy 
within, I think it was seven to 10 days. So even though there was no assistance for the good five to seven days, when it did happen, it really happened at a huge magnitude, which was very beneficial. You look and you study disasters and disaster management, and then you don't ever think about these type of remote areas where you have a large influx of, you know, not just local people that live there, but tourists and how to deal with that magnitude of moving of personnel and relocation of people. And I mean, just, it's just an incredible feat. I mean, moving, you know, 30 to 40,000 tourists housing, you know, you know, what was, you know, 15, 20,000 locals. It's, uh, you know, like you say, without any gas stations, without electricity, without communication methods to get to them. There's no internet, there's no power, there's no cellular. Um, you know, I don't think people look at that, that end of the spectrum when they're planning these types of events. And hopefully in the future, they will after something like this. Right. One of the things too, is that, you know, everybody can criticize everything in life, quite frankly. And one of my, my, my mantra is like, be part of the solution, not the pollution. And so that is just it. Be part of the solution, not the pollution. Um, don't feed the hypocrisy on the internet and don't do, you know, a lot of the things that people like to, like to do. And with regarding to criticize, you know, every authority figure and everyone who was working so hard, I mean, as a resident, I can, I can tell you every single person was affected and every single person was not at, you know, hundred percent capacity. Everyone was at a thousand percent capacity. There isn't somebody that wasn't doing what they could, how they could, whatever way they could to get assistance, relief, something to the survivors. Uh, there was many, many uh, sleepless nights by everybody involved. I mean, you know, in, in what people outside of Maui County and what outside of the state don't recognize too, is that every single person was affected. Like I said, everybody knew somebody or, or, you know, the people live there. I mean, they lost homes, they lost cars, they lost people, they lost humans, they lost their, you know, favorite restaurant, they lost, you know, all of these things. And so instead of, like I said, contributing to to this pollution, let's all work together and be part of the solution. And part of that solution is enhanced communications and relationships to continue to try to do what we can in the future to effectively and efficiently, you know, expedite resources and in and, and to these areas and and do what we can to save lives and prevent this from happening in the first place. That kind of brings us full circle right back around to the the original discussions about Whitnick, even where you were on 8 August, about the funding coordination positions, funding public safety, funding for search and rescue, uh, funding for prevention and education of, you know, these types of events, not just the fires that occurred in Maui, but just, you know, the lost people, the missing people, the coordination between the different state, federal, local agencies, county agencies in order to respond to these, these types of events. Right. So 
across the United States and actually even in in uh in, in Vancouver. Vancouver is, if you take Vancouver, for instance, their tourism association funds quite a bit um, for prevention in Vancouver of their tourists. You go to Florida, for instance, and you take the different, I mean, you you take the 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 demographic, I mean the um the geology, the the terrain of Vancouver and the terrain of Florida, dramatically different, right? But there's still high tourist areas. If you go ahead and you look at the tourism authority or whatever they want to call it in Florida, they also fund a tremendous amount for prevention and awareness within the state of Florida. Wyoming, for instance, where the Tetons are, they have 8 million visitors per year and Hawaii has 10 million visitors per year. The, they gain $4 billion for their $8 million tourist dollars and Hawaii has $17 billion for the $10 million tourists. So Hawaii is getting $17 billion, and they're getting only $4 billion, even though we almost have the same amount of tourism. Wyoming Visitors Bureau funds over a million dollars a year for preparing tourists for their unfamiliar environments, where in Hawaii, I've been searching for that information and have not found it yet. So something along, you know, not just looking for the government to hand out more money, but also some of the associations that are benefiting directly by having those tourists or having those um, activities, you know, the benefits that go to those organizations also being able to give some of that back. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that certainly is a way that the Hawaii Tourism Association could could assist, but within the state and the state government, as far as refining or looking or improving the state SAR system, uh, because from what I've found is it's really not broken. It's just, it's really not there um, to develop one from the ground up. The advantage of us developing one from the ground up is that we've got the best practices all we have to do is is you know implement them and implement a, um, a a statewide system for data collection to build that solid foundation and um to improve that systematic you know system within within the the state there is a a need for a state SAR coordinator a state SAR plan a fund and a board that all comes from the government that all comes from you know the state legislators putting together bills in funding for those proper items if somebody wanted to reach out and assist in this endeavor like you know write to a part of the state legislature or you know assist in some way shape or form how could they do that so this is very, that is an excellent question, Mark, because people don't know how to do this. And like right now with everything happening on Maui, um, there are, are meetings taking place and things being passed. And then the community members are like, well, wait a minute, we didn't know anything about that. Within every city, county and state, there are meetings and they start at the city level and then they go to the county level and then they will go up to the state level. 
And so if you look on your county calendars, you will see what is on the agenda for the meetings. And what you have to do is you have to give testimony for these agenda items. So right now, they will be writing bills to present at the beginning of the year um, in Hawaii. And so each county needs to look at the agendas in their county uh, county commissioner meetings and they go and they have to give testimony for these agenda items. Now you can give testimony, you can give video testimony, you can give written testimony, or you can give oral testimony in person. And so what I have also found is that unless you're giving oral testimony either on video or in person, they often let the other testimonies just go to the side. One thing I've also learned about all of these county commissions and city commissioners and, you know, the state representatives and the legislators, and they're all listening to all of this information, is that they don't investigate, they don't seek out, they are just there listening. They are listening to what the community brings to them. So if you have an idea, a thought, a way to be a part of the solution, then speak up and bring it to the county commissions. Write a testimony. When you say a testimony, you're talking for three minutes, you're explaining, you're giving the data, you're giving the information, because that is all they have to go on to make their decisions. Again, they don't go and investigate. They don't go and research that isn't their role. That isn't their job from what I understand. They are there to sit and listen and make a decision. It's kind of like if you're going to court, the judge isn't going to go out and seek out the information. The judge is just going to listen to both parties and make a decision. So if you're a community member and you want something done, you have to go and, fight and, and give testimony. Okay, that's that's great to give to people. That's an awesome takeaway that they can take from this and go, you know, hey, I want to see some of these changes and you know make that occur. Um, we had also sp uh, spoken, you had mentioned that you need speakers and vendors at some upcoming conferences as well in this in this field. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, so right now, um, with regards to prevention and safety within the state of Hawaii, the um, Hawaii SARCON is the only platform in the state that allows all of the search and rescue, everything that falls under the umbrella of search and rescue, as well as the community members to come together for this, you know, communication and relationships to build that uh, for more effective and efficient lines um, to save lives. And so right now on the books, it is tentatively scheduled for May 1st through the 5th, pending the state's support. You know, this, this is something that should be taken on by the state and should be carried on from the state. Um, we cannot, it, it's, it's a very, it's very costly to do an event like this. And so this particular type of event provides the tools, trainings, and technologies that all of these 
individuals need, all of these teams need. And so the last one, like we said, we had over 20 experts from around the country that came out and um, provided amazing you know, information to the people of Hawaii, the, the SAR teams of Hawaii. Um, and so right now there is a call out for speakers. If you go to the actual website of hawaiisarcon.com, there's a call for speakers. There's information there about the last SARCON, the upcoming, and with regards to partnerships and multiple opportunities for anyone around the world. Right on. And that's in May, you said, for the SARCON in Hawaii. Correct. Excellent. Was there anything else that we've missed? Well, the only thing I'd like to say is that um, everyone in Hawaii and Maui especially really appreciates everyone's help around the world. The The contributions have been profound and we would just like you guys to to remember us that you know this is not going away anytime soon. We do need continual support and aid, and uh, you know, I will also say that you know Hawaii is open for tourism. It's just that Lahaina is not there any longer. Tourism is a double edged sword. Is there's extra mouths to feed, but Hawaii predominantly runs off of tourism. I mean, your stats there, 17 billion in in tourism a year to cut off the tourism. These people that have lost their homes and lost family members and lost, you know, in some cases, everything they have, the last thing they want to do is lose their job as well, because there's no tourists coming in. It's such a, it's, it's such a fine line and a double-edged sword on that. Right. Everyone, as I had mentioned before, even if you're not in the burn zone, everyone on Maui has been affected because it's essentially run off of tourism. So if you are planning your vacations or uh, holidays to Hawaii, you don't need to cancel it. There's plenty to do. You just um, will have to wait a good five to 10 years to revisit Lahaina Town because it's not there. No, fair enough. So well, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I, I've, I've learned some great things today here. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it's, it's just kind of fallen out of the news cycle. And for me to be able to hear what's going on four months post and to hear some of the things that occurred day of has been very educational. And, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know, Mark, thank you very much for giving us the time. We, It's very appreciated.